Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. With over 11 million families behind on rent or mortgage payments and the Fed pumping $6 trillion into the economy, today's guest has a wait-and-see perspective on investing in today's real estate market. There's just too much uncertainty on top of already historically low cap rates and inflated prices. That's why Jeremy Roll, president of Roll Investment Group, has lots of cash on the side and is waiting patiently to see how things pan out over the next couple years. Today, it's afternoon here and it's afternoon where my guest is. We're both in the, uh, the golden state of California. Some people would argue it's becoming less golden by the, by the month, but that's another podcast. He is the founder and president of Roll Investment Group, is a fantastic investor, brilliant guy. You know, anybody that's smarter than me, I just, just, just look up to and just go, he's brilliant. The guy went to Wharton, what could I say? And, you know, I barely could have gone to community college. And so anyway, today we have with us Jeremy Roll, founder and president of Roll Investment Group. Jeremy manages a group of over 1,500 investors who seek passive managed cash flowing investments in real estate and businesses. Jeremy, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you so much for having me on. And if you ever do have that podcast about California, I'd love to be on it. (laughs) (laughs) I have plenty of uh, perspectives to share living in Los Angeles. So that is extremely amusing. Well, you know, I, I don't know if it's because older and I've been out here, you know, since the 80s. Uh, so I don't know if it's on like because I'm older or if it really has gotten worse, but I actually think both. You know, when I was a kid and I grew up in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, not exactly a garden spot then, and, and nor is it now and, and arguably never will be. But back then, the image of California was like this laid back beach lifestyle with blonde people and just chilled out and mellow and California could not be further from that image. Uh, It is just a complete rat race, grind, overpopulated, filled with unpleasant people. I I try not to swear on the podcast, so um, there are other words, but just unpleasant human beings populating the the shores of, of the Golden State. But Jeremy, tell me about where you're from. Where I mean, are you a native Californian or did you hail from elsewhere um, and uh, all that? Sure. Yeah. And thanks again for having me on. Hopefully it's be helpful for whoever's listening. Thanks for listening to this today. So I'm originally from Montreal, Canada. Um, that's where I grew up. And uh, I went to school there, went to undergrad there, actually had my first two jobs there. And then I moved down to Philadelphia in 98 to, to do that MBA at Wharton at UPenn. Um, so I was there for two years. And then in 2000, I came out to Los Angeles. I've been here in LA and California since 2000. And so I've spent about half my life, a little bit more than half my life where in Montreal originally and, and just under half my life here in LA. So is French your, are you a native French speaker? So Montreal is such an interesting place. When you grow up, you have no choice but to speak French in certain scenarios. And even in school, French is a requirement. And in fact, some of the like, I guess what you would consider to be the equivalent state testing, if there is such a thing, is typically done in French, even if you're learning the, the actual topic in English. So it's a fascinating, interesting place. And, you know, if you drive anywhere 45 minutes outside of the main city, you're going to be with 
like close to 100% French people. So you really have to know the language. So I, I grew up English first, I call it, plus uh, French second. But French is something you kind of absolutely learn through the school system. So I, I'm, it's very rusty at best right now, my French, uh, but I could definitely get by if I needed to. And are you, do you still have family there? I do actually. My Both my brother and my mom um, still live in Montreal. And I'll, for anybody who hasn't been there, who's listening to this, fantastic place to visit in the summer. Probably one of my favorite cities. And I've been to many places. Uh, don't recommend it at all in the winter and also probably not in the fall. Gosh, I was there. You said not in the fall? Yeah, well, you know, you can get lucky in the fall. Sometimes it gets really warm. We get like a week of spe- you know, specifically warm weather. But if you get the wrong week in the fall, it's like cold and rainy and cold rain is, is not fun. We went there, we being my wife and I, uh, and I'm not going to say when because then it'll date me, but it was for my 50th birthday and uh, my, my birthday's end of September. So we had great fall weather and I won't argue. I, I thought it was a super cool city and uh, re- really loved it. Well, so I, I guess the next question is, you know, from one to another here, I could kind of guess your lineage if you follow what I'm saying. But uh, do you guys go back to Eastern Europe, uh, going back to, you know, the last century turn of or what, what's the what's the lineage? That is correct. Uh, both sets of my grandparents came from there and were for kind of first generation kidding both separately. So 100 percent correct. Oh, you're first generation can- Canadian. So they they didn't come 100 years ago. It was more recent. That's right. Well, they came. Uh, well, at this point, they probably got there in the 40s. So, you know, from both because of the war and stuff. So, yeah, it's uh, it, 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 it's relatively recent, but starting to get, I guess, starting to get there at this point. Starting to. So were they, do you know what country they were from? Yeah, um, they were from, um, I had one set from Russia. And one set from Poland. And um, it actually made for a really interesting upbringing because there was a lot of Russian and Polish spoken around me a lot of the time. So and between that and the English and the French, it was pretty interesting. So you're on the Polish side. Is that mom or dad? Oh, that was uh, that was uh, mom. And so it sounds and they got out in the 40s or like they survived the war or, or do you know? I would call it um, they fled before the war, basically, like just as it was starting. Okay, yeah, because uh, the odds were not uh, that one would have survived that, um, you know, brutality and, you know, that that gets into a whole other. Well, that's very interesting. So you're lucky uh, and and I'm lucky we're here and and we weren't there and et cetera. Well, that's that's very interesting. I mean, did they. Did they have, um, I guess, an immigrant perspective where, you know, appreciate everything you have? I mean, did, did that inform, you know, kind of some of the ethos and, you know, mentality around growing up or, or not really? hundred um, percent. Both of my grandfathers were entrepreneurs in the true sense and that they came with very little. My mother's father was a particularly interesting story who literally got here was a uh, he actually done reason so it's a, it's a longer story I'm not sure it's worth getting onto but he actually fled from where he was went to China and then eventually got here and in China even though he was really young in his teens he he actually built really good businesses had a ton of money but then had to flee the communist government there and had to leave everything behind and start over already again and then when he got here he literally started as a janitor from having built up very strong businesses there and as a janitor 
in real estate buildings. He actually then learned the business from the people who own those buildings, et cetera. And then eventually got into the, into the real estate business, which is coincidental because I didn't really learn the real estate business from him. But he had a, like a truly classic immigrant story, you know? So the businesses, are you saying he started in, in China? That's right. He had started a couple of businesses in China. And he, just like as a young, it, it, just picture like a young guy who was just willing to work 24-7 to do what he had to do, right? And he built a, a lot of savings, a lot of things, and he had to flee like overnight and just leave everything out of his apartment based off a tip he got that the government was going to come in the next day and clean house there. And so uh, he fled. He managed to get, uh, I think he, he's able kind of bought a passport or something of the sort. I mean, it's basically like a movie, right? And then he came here with nothing, basically, and then started from scratch. Do you know what kind of businesses they were? I believe he had two businesses. One had to do with like um, importing and the other one had to do with, uh, I think, carpets. Um, I don't have the full story, to be honest, but um, it's, uh, it's and it, what's so interesting is that he then came here and learned the whole new business and was highly successful at that, right? So he had the entrepreneurial ability in him, so to speak. You know, some people that can be very successful in multiple different industries. That's your mom's dad, right? Yes. And what about your dad's dad? My father's father came here with very little as well and ended up um, doing kind of the manuf- certain subset of max- manufacturing of clothes, which was a very popular thing for a lot of the immigrants in Montreal. And in fact, still to today, uh, it's still a popular area for people manufacturing clothing. And he did uh, like a subset of the work of some of the clothes, meaning he wouldn't, he wouldn't create an entire piece of clothing, but he'd do certain parts of it with the machinery he had. And he had a very successful business that went on for decades to his credit. So, you know, similar situation, really interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we folks have been uh, big in, in the manufacturing of garments for centuries. Yes, a hundred percent. And he was definitely heavily, you know, in that whole, uh, you know, community and, and part of it, you know, as part of what he did. There, there's a street in Montreal that, you know, it, and, and I probably wouldn't even remember cause it's been a while ago where a lot of the garment industry exists and there's a lot of retail there too. And it's, it's, it, I think is like the coolest part of Montreal, but I just don't remember the name of it. Does it sound, am I, is what I'm describing? Does it, does it ring a bell with you or no? There's a couple of possibilities. The one that's coming to mind right away is called Saint Laurent Street. Yeah, that was it. Okay, yeah, that, that's the most popular one. I'd say it's a very—I don't know what you would equate it to. It's almost, um, you know, in Los Angeles, it's almost like Venice-ish. I would call it for those listening. It's hard to describe. Yes, yeah, I think that's adequate. But yet, it's in Montreal, and so kind of older, kind of more character, and as a result, cooler is my recollection. So. So you went to Wharton, clearly a smart guy, and you got into investing around, well, you moved out to LA in 2000. Did you get into investing right away or what kind of led you to that, you know, to investing and what were some of the first things that you did? Yeah, good question. So I had always been interested in investing. I couldn't tell you why, but I'd follow the stock market and CNBC every day. I just watch it. I was investing in it through my retirement savings, through my jobs, right? But I was really staying on top of it. And what happened with kind of the alternative investing I do now is that all started in 2001 when, I mean, the actual investing started in 02, but my interest in it started in 01 after the dot-com crash. And I was really turned off. I'm a very low-risk guy. I kind of have that reputation as just a fact of who I am. And 
I got interested in it after the dot-com crash because the lack of the volatility of the stock market and also the lack of predictability of the stock market, which was even the bigger piece of the concern for me, really turned me off of using the stock market as kind of the long-term retirement plan for myself. And so I looked at different ways to invest and came kind of across a bunch of different things. And what I concluded just for my own personality fit was that kind of low risk, passive cash flow um, on stuff that's more highly occupied, asset-based type of investing and buildings and stuff. Um, all that together just was really appealing to me for more predictability. It all came down to predictability. And so I started investing in O2 in these types of alternative investments, including real estate and other things. And I still to today have the exact same philosophy of predictability and looking for predictability, looking for cash flow, which as you very well know, over time has become more and more challenging as interest rates have structurally come down and cash flows have come down. Uh, but that's been my focus since 2002. Um, so it's been about 19 years, just over 19 years now that I've been investing in those types of opportunities. And so, you know, when you talk about this predictability, you talk about hard assets, you talk about cash flow and you say like real estate and other things, what are examples of the other things? Sure. Well, I'll give you an example back in 2004 because it served me really well. So, you know, the challenge I had, you know, which everybody has at some point, and frankly, arguably everybody always has is that like, you know, you have, you have a, what's, I would say a finite amount of capital to invest. But when I was younger, I had a very small amount of capital to invest. And so I, I want to build up that snowball more quickly. And so uh, a friend of mine who owned a web hosting company, which, you know, for those of you who are a little younger, this is before Amazon Web Services, before there was the cloud, you had to kind of create a private cloud for companies to be able to actually host, you'd have to host companies on those clouds that were private, not public, um, or not hosted by big companies, but server farms and stuff. And so my friend had a web hosting company, and he offered for me, he came to me one day and he said, I'm buying all these servers from Dell. I'm a small business, um, but I have to lease them all. An interest rate is 28%, okay, because I'm a small business. So he said, I'm happy to do it with this leasing company, but do you want to make that money instead? And I was like, you know what? Let's give it a try, right? And this was someone who I just had to make a bet on personality-wise. I knew him really well. Um, he had uh, his company, sorry, his company, his family, um, who had been very successful. He told me, like, they've kind of served as a guarantor for the loans on top of it all. And to me, that was a relatively low risk initiative, even though the equipment depreciates very quickly, the computer equipment, just because of the person I'm making a bet on. And so between 04 and 12, I probably initiated more than 80 leases for him. And just to give you some numbers, when you do a 28% interest rate, a three-year term on equipment like that with a 5% buyout, you're talking about a 50 to 55% cash on cash return each year. So you know, you're getting about 150% in three years or, you know, 50% return in three years, but you're getting it monthly and you can then compound it. And it was a great lesson in compounding for me. And when I compounded that many leases over that many years, it was very significant, right? Because I actually went pretty hard at it from a dollar perspective because I was younger. So that's one of many examples of, you know, a lot of people would consider that an investment. I considered it an investment at the time. I've since made many different, I mean, it easily been over 100 investments. I'm in over 60 LLCs today right now. But um, that's one of many examples I can give you. That's really interesting. So so you're saying that even though he was your friend, he just says, can you do it? And you said at 28% as opposed to, hey, I'll give you the buddy deal at 18%. It was just, you did it at 28%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he wasn't coming to me trying to negotiate a better deal. He just said to me, I'm going to do it with this company. Just you want to do it instead. I'm happy to pay you the interest. And I said, okay, you know, so that's how it went. 
And, and how much money would you say, you know, you put into each, into each tranche, if you will? I'm trying to remember how it was a long time ago. I'm trying to remember how much those, those, I think these servers were, they were all different, right? Because he had different needs at different times, but let's call the servers somewhere between three and 7,000 a piece. Um, but when I said I did 80 leases, sometimes there are multiple servers in an order. So meaning, you know, one lease would be for at, at a, basically one purchase at a time. So whether the purchase was one server because they needed one server at the time or three or whatever it was. So it's really hard to average out just like on the fly like this. I'd have to go back and look at all the data. But that was about the range that we're talking about. I, I got it. I got it. And so when you say, Jeremy, you're in 60 LLCs now, is there a concentration of industry? Is it tech? Is it and does that include real estate or is it just all over the map? Yeah, actually, I would say that there's a concentration of real estate and that my primary focus is on real estate. It's not all real estate. We can get into some more other examples, but um, definitely my favorite thing to invest in is what I call a, a highly diversified tenant base, highly experienced sponsor, you know, highly occupied, you know, 80 to 100% occupied, stabilized and more predictable type of cash flow play in a real estate property. And most of the real estate I invest in is what I call commercial and I include apartments in that. But what I mean by commercial is terms of size. So typically I'm investing in a deal. If it's an individual deal, that's in the 10 to 25 million to 30 million range. If it's a fund, it could be 25 to $100 million fund. And uh, I invest across all different types of asset classes, uh, which I can get into the list if you'd like. But I also invest in different aspects of single family homes. I have some investments outside of real estate, like ATM machines, a little bit of oil and gas and some other debt related stuff. And then I do have a handful of startups. I'm in about 10 startups. A couple of those are tech related, not all of them, uh, but those are very rare for me and not something I'm uh, specifically looking for. <laughs> I'm just smiling because it just sounds like you are so, first of all, it sounds like you must have like a zillion deals come across your desk and you've probably developed an amazing ability to synthesize them down to their essence and have probably an amazing ability to discard the lion's share, you know, with a real discipline. And, and I have a feeling you're uh, systematic about it. And uh, it's kind of impressive hearing about it. And, and so you're looking for a div diversified tenant base, a, a level of occupancy experience uh, sponsors. So I guess, you know, it's like a lot of people in real estate, you know, do fit that bill on paper, but yet how, how do you really vet them so that you can be super confident that they're going to execute and that they're above board and they know to, how to handle all the different aspects specifically around their ability to manage the you know projects manage the managers manage them themselves or you know whatever the configuration is yeah great question and, and this is a complicated topic that we could spend hours on truly in terms of underwriting and all this type of thing but what i would say and i, I don't know if you caught it before but when i told you that i invested in those computer leases I was making a bet on a person. I even told you I consider it low risk because of who I was making a bet on, right? I actually consider it high risk because of the assets, but I considered it low risk because of who I was making the bet on. So meaning that in the end of the day, I saw it as low risk, even though some people look at the equipment and say, this is high risk, right? So for me, it's all about who you're making a bet on. And I tell people that when I'm analyzing a deal or a property, even that's not real estate related, my number one concern is who am I making a bet on, even for startups. My number two concern is, you know, what is that property or what is that business? And, and it clearly the property or the business and the business plan are very important, but the people are number one. And so on the real estate side, on the, or on the more passive, low risk cash flow side, 
what the best way to describe what I'm looking for is I'm trying to find experienced people who um, are conservative, who are looking to underpromise and overdeliver to um, basically uh, outperform for investors in order to build long-term relationships with investors who will reinvest with them. And I'm trying to avoid sponsors who are aggressive in their assumptions, who are trying to make the numbers look really good, attract investors, but there may be sometimes very good marketing machines. And frankly, if they don't perform well, then they'll just move on to the next investor because they're going to keep finding investors anyway. So at the very high level, that's what I'm trying to find. Then the tricky part becomes evaluating who are you dealing with? Are they conservative or not? Are they very detailed or not? Of course, you know, I'm a very detailed person myself. I'm going to align best. And I'm also a very conservative person. And so you'll see that my best alignment is with people who are similar to the way that I am and similar to what I'm looking for, right? And so from a high level, that's kind of what I'm looking for. And what I would tell you is that the way you assess all this is a lot of reading between the lines. And what I mean by that, which is I know hard to kind of describe, is sometimes I'll ask sponsors questions about a deal, not because I actually care about, I actually care less about what the answer is and more about how they answer it, right? So I can give you some examples, but how they answer it can tell me if they're conservative. Sometimes how they answer it can tell me if they're very detailed. Give you a really easy to understand great example that pro- like, probably a lot of people wouldn't think about. If I'm going to go visit a property on site as I'm trying to evaluate if I want to invest in it, I'm meeting the operator there on site. There's two different experiences I can have in my, you know, after 19 years of doing this, uh, just uh, high level. One is I could be at a hotel. The sponsor says, meet me at X, Y, and Z address of the property at 11 a.m. We'll spend an hour there. I'll show you everything you need to know, right? The second experience I can have is where are you staying? I'm going to pick you up at 1030, 1015. On the way, I'm going to talk to you. You know, I'll give you a tour of the area. And, and then um, we'll go to the property, we'll have lunch, we'll tour around more, and then you know I'll drop you off at your hotel. Now, the difference between those two, some people may say, oh, this person's just trying to build a relationship with you. And that's partially true, right? And that, that could be helpful as well for, for me. But more importantly, that person who picks me up and drives me down to that property, what they're doing on the way very often, and if they're not, then this tells me something about them too, but often is, let's say it's a retail strip center I'm looking to invest in just because it's relatable. They're going to drive down the main street. They're going to say, oh, you know, let's just drive in. I want to show you this property because it's one of our competitors. And they'll start showing me the different retailers there. They'll start showing me why it's similar and different to what we're looking to invest in. And maybe even some of the rental rates or some of the vacancies. And this will be a pattern. So by the time I get to the property, they have already given me a crazy great overview and detailed overview of the competitive landscape, where this location of this property is relative to everybody else and why they're considering this property, right? Then we tour the property, get the typical tour, maybe go for lunch. They give me more thoughts about the area. They maybe give me more of a tour after. They may even show me some of the surrounding residential component to the area and how that feeds into the retail that we're looking to invest in and why this is a good location or it's maybe a limited supply market of retail because it's surrounded by houses that are already infilled, whatever it is. But that is two very different experiences, right? One of them is just meet me at the property. I'll tell you the property. And that person might be a great operator, but I don't know how detailed they are by the time I leave, right? And reading between the lines. The other person I'm going to go read between the lines of because I'm going to be able to because they've been extremely detailed with me and showed me they've done a ton of research. And so there's a lot of reading between the lines that takes place when I'm, and you can do this even when you're reading business plans, even in some of the verbiage and the words that are used to determine if someone's aggressive or conservative alone, right? So um, sorry for the long answer, but those are some of the, the ways that I try to sort out who I'm dealing with. Amazing, amazing. So I have, you know, across a handful of years, 
um, I have found a lot of creative ways to lose absolutely a ton of money. And um, <laughs> I have done some of the stupidest things humanly imaginable that I beat myself up over, flagellated myself over mercilessly for years. And now I'm just letting myself go. And, you know, like, what's the point? And so I'm just trying to learn. And, and, and so here's a recent example. And when I say recent, literally like last week. So I still like multifamily. It's overheated. And so now I'm looking for in this case, it's an operator that has been born and raised in San Antonio. Everything he does in this is in San Antonio. It's all value add, has a great track record. I podcasted him and I believe that is overheated as the market is. I think this guy can be, you know, I don't think I'd lose my money, right? You know, Warren Buffett rule number one, don't lose, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And, you know, and that market is steady. It's, it's one of the steadier markets in the country. So even big recession, you're probably somewhat insulated, blah, blah, blah. But none of that is the point. The point is this, I'm working with an analyst that works, uh, has done underwriting for Cantor Fitzgerald is a, is, is a day job for a long time. Super, 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 super analytical, detail-oriented, ha has to be. And so I've been working with this guy. So he he had me ask for, you know, an Excel of the business plan, number one, and uh, which the guy didn't give. And number two, I made a promise to myself a while ago that I would not buy anything that I didn't go see. And that also, if possible, I would meet the sponsor face to face. So I said, hey, I'd like to come to San Antonio, stop by your office for and meet you in your office for 15 minutes and maybe see the property. So a week goes by and he emails me back saying, you know, hey, sure, if you're ever in San Antonio, let me know and I'll hook you up with you know, so-and-so by, you know, who's in charge of investor relations. So I am not going to invest. Not because I don't think that, you know, I could do well with them or he's legitimate, but I'm looking to ruthlessly come up with reasons not to invest. And they just seem like reasons not to invest. Do you and I think along the same lines? Yes. Essentially, I consider myself almost like a private investigator trying to figure out what's wrong with something as opposed to what's right with something. That's how I approach a deal, honestly, because there's so many deals out there and your job, your work as a past investor is all up front. And you've got to be really rigorous with it, right? So your work is to find what's wrong with the deal so that you move on to the next. And if you don't find anything wrong with the deal, then you consider investing in it. And Roger, what you're describing to me is that you found something wrong and that you move on to the next. And there is no reason to not move on to the next. There's an, a, plenty of opportunities out there. Um, and so we're very much on the same page with that. So here, here's a question, though, for you is, is when you're going out, are you, and I know you didn't want to get too in the weeds on the investing you did on behalf of other people. And I, and I want to respect that. And so if, if this question is one you'd rather deflect, I, again, no problem, but I, I just have to ask it because it's, it's, it's relevant to what we're talking about. So when you go, are you bringing a pool of money that's just beyond you as an investor? And the reason I ask is because like after this situation, like literally last week, I conclude that, Hey, the guy probably just doesn't need my money. Like to me, it doesn't, what happened doesn't necessarily mean he's not legit. You know, he probably just doesn't need me and he's busy and, and that's fine too, but ultimately it has to work for me. So I'm asking with your situation. So if I were coming to him and I probably would have put maybe a hundred grand and let's say, but it, if I were putting in maybe 
let's say two mil, I have a feeling he would have, you know, he would have made a little bit more time. Let's put it that way. So when you come to the table, is it just, are you representing just you or are you, are you bringing in more weight into the, into the deal? Yeah. Great question. So first thing I'll say is that I'm going to guess that you're, you could be right uh, in that it could be that this person has an organization that have an investor relations person dedicated to spending time with investors and they can't necessarily take the time to be with an individual smaller investor, right? So that's very possible that happened. That doesn't necessarily make it okay for you though, right? There's a difference, right? Just because that's how they structure themselves and just because that, you know, they still might be very successful in the deal, it doesn't mean that you should um, override your requirements and move forward with that deal. I- I'm very principled about that, right? So um, that's a very important point, okay? Uh, at least from my perspective. Now, most of the investing I do is just for myself. I send a very small subset of what I invest into my group, but most of it is just for myself. Um, so I will say that it really depends on the scenario in terms of what you're asking. Um, I do have the advantage of people knowing I have an investor group. So I have more leverage in certain cases, even if I'm investing for myself and that some sponsors may think that eventually I may bring my group into it. And so it is a different experience for me. Sometimes I have to be honest. And where I really get leverage is not just in that case, but uh, possibly even more importantly, maybe not more important, equally importantly, is sometimes I can negotiate changes to some of the legal documents that maybe an individual investor wouldn't be able to negotiate. And it's funny because when I'm in the regular investor shoes that you're talking about, let's say let's say it was like you trying to negotiate, if I can't get the changes that I need, I'll just move on to the next deal, right? Sometimes I deal with that myself. And I actually very recently dealt with a similar situation. You know, it just, again, you have to be very careful with your requirements. And if you cannot find what you need, you have to stick to them because there's just too many deals out there and there's no point of increasing your risk when you could go on to the next deal. Again, and I I don't really come down hard and fast because I know what I don't know and I'm still kind of neophyte in this process. And so at the end of the day, I mean, I don't know if I'm right or wrong. That's why I asked you, but I kind of, I conclude with, well, if this is the way he's this if, if this is the way i'm going to be responded to on the front end of this thing wait till something goes wrong and then i'm you know i might not there might not be a response so i i, I don't really know so yeah but let me just chime in though so the problem is that the what you're experiencing could come from a few different reasons i'm going to give you a great example and this is going to give you i think even more confidence in the decision you made i've been investing in atm machines since 2008 the private atms you might see at like the corner liquor store that, that aren't like a bank of america branded machine and um i love those investments but they're unfortunately because the returns are high there's a lot of unscrupulous people out there there are a lot of ponzi schemes in that industry and i have actually successfully pre-identified three ponzi schemes since 2008 of stuff i was looking into that I said to myself, this is probably a Ponzi scheme, and it turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. I didn't report any of them, but and one of them in particular, I was a little bit scared to report. It was just too big. But the one that was too big, okay, Roger, I am. I live in Los Angeles at the time. I lived right near Santa Monica. This person had an office in Westlake Village. Uh, let's call it, you know, half an hour drive, uh, maybe on a good day, forty-five minutes to an hour on a really bad day. Very close, right? It could have been anywhere in the U.S. And they have an office right near me. I say to them. Can I, can I take a look at your business plan? Oh, we've been operating for 10 plus years. We haven't changed it since then. It's not up to date. I don't really have something for you, but I, I'm happy to answer any questions you have by phone. And by the way, they have already raised many, many, many millions of dollars. They're very well known in the city. Can I take a look at your legal documents? Uh, well, we'll send those to you when you're ready to move forward. We'd like to keep them private otherwise. Okay. Can I drive to your office and look at your machine? Can I get a login to look at your machines? Because in the ATM world, 
when I invest with my smaller operator, I actually get a login to look at all my machines real time. They're able to just create another account for me, right? So they say, we don't provide individual accounts. No problem. That makes sense. You're a really big operator, too many people to manage. Can I drive to your office and meet you in person and look at your all your machines on your terminal at your office? They say, sorry, we don't do that. Okay. Now you may just be like, okay, well, this guy doesn't want to deal with me, right? I'm too small of an investor, right? Well, it turned out to be the biggest, I think one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in, in LA ever, you know, two, $300 million that was wow. broken up like eight years later. But honestly, I looked at all those answers. I said, this is probably a Ponzi scheme. If he won't show me his machines on his computer, it's probably a Ponzi scheme. But you may have said to yourself, you know what? He just doesn't want to spend the time with me. I'm just a small investor. If I had 2 million, maybe he would, right? But there's more important consequences potentially to some of this behavior that you maybe even not even a th- thought about. So this is why you got to stick to your guns and be very, very disciplined about what you're willing to do and not do, depending on the scenario. What a great story. You know, again, I got I have a big smile on my face because just yesterday, this is just such a fun conversation. I'm just loving this. So just yesterday. So I got so the guy who's helping me is an analyst just because this is what he does and he's sharp and this and that. He actually came across a self-storage operator that he deemed to be you know, pretty legit without further scrutiny, right? He likes to underwrite everything on his own, but he said, it, they look, they seem legit. That's as far as he said, but he goes, I don't know for sure, but send them my way. So then I get an email and this was a couple months ago. So now I get an email over the last week where they're trying to basically just raise some, some money and they're just going to give you 10% and it's basically debt and you'll get your money back in a year. And so I call the guy yesterday, we're on the phone and it's in Round Rock, you know, outside of Austin, you know, the, arguably the hottest market in the country and it blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're buying land and this and that. And there are a bunch of particulars I don't even have the answer to, but need. But apart from all that, I'm like, the first thing is they're going to personally guarantee the loan. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, if you're going to personally guarantee the loan, could I see any fine, you know, personal financials, you know, on you? And you know, he wasn't like unpleasant about it, but but he basically said, you, you're the only one that's asked for that. In other words, you sh- you sh- even though he was OK about it, but, he, but basically what he was saying is you shouldn't be asking. And by the way, I have people that have put 600 grand into this and 700 grand of that. And I'm thinking to myself, OK, I, I get that. OK, maybe once again, maybe you, you don't need me. So, you know, and then I, I get that. But I'm thinking, dude, put yourself in my position. We've never met. Okay, we live about 2,000 miles apart. So is your point I should just mail you 100 grand and we've never met and feel great about that with nothing? So it's, (laughs) so, you know, how do I move into your point? There's always another deal. So I don't know. I guess it's just common sense kind of stuff. And like you're saying, it's reading between the lines. I guess you learn about people just in terms of the process of, you know, how they answer your questions and how they respond to different requests, I guess. Yes, that's true. And I would say, too, that, you know, we can get into a lot more detail here, but high level, I would tell people not to invest unless you're 100 percent comfortable because you're giving control to somebody. Right. Full control. Because when you invest in these types of deals, you typically have a very small percentage interest, which means your vote is somewhat insignificant. It's not zero, but it's not hugely consequential. So I tell people, look, you're going to be in an illiquid situation. Someone else is going to have full control. You better be 100% comfortable. And if you can't get to 100% comfort level, or if your gut's telling you not to do it, it's just not worth it, right? It just doesn't make sense. Now, everyone's going to have their own requirements, though, right? You're asking for, uh, if you ask for a personal financial statement from someone, maybe the next person doesn't need that. But I would caution people, though, that 
sometimes you can have requirements that aren't realistic to get 99 times out of 100. And therefore, you might, it may not be the best fit for you to be investing passively as a result, right? So um, we can get into that if you want. But it's kind of a, it's an interesting topic, because I'm a very big proponent of someone being 100% comfortable before moving forward in anything because of the illiquid nature of what we're looking at here and the fact you're giving up control. And that's that's not something to be taken lightly, to your point. Do do you think asking for his, uh, you know, personal financial statement was unrealistic in that scenario? And it won't hurt my feelings if you say yes. Yeah, Yeah. I I think that probably it's a very uncommon request. So I think that um, if I had to guess, you're going to find eight or nine times out of 10, they're going to say no as a small investor. And that's when you have to decide, okay, should this be on my list of of requirements for me to get to 100% comfort level? Or can I compromise on that if I don't compromise on anything else because I want to be very diversified into passive investments, right? So it's that's just my guess. I'm, it's, be, it's just good as anybody else's guess, truly. But uh, I do think that that would be a high bar if you weren't investing, you know, and let's say a much larger than average amount of money compared to the average investor going into that deal. That's just my guess. Well, that is really good to know. And you know, it's funny. And, and, and I asked it, I wouldn't have known to ask it. I asked it because again, that this advisor, and I'm using that, that term very loosely, you know, said, Hey, well, if he's personally, and he, so it came from him and what do I know? And so, but you know, in my mind, he could have a really strong balance sheet and still screw me. <laughs> so it's like, I was thinking to myself, I'm being told to ask this. I get it. But I'm thinking to myself, what does it really, what does it really give me along the lines of any assurance? But nonetheless, so I guess in your vetting sponsors, I guess, and all the years that you've been doing it, what would you say have been mistakes that you've made where, you know, you went wrong with the sponsor and, and, you know, what you learned from it? Yeah, I'd say the one that stands out the most is there was a deal I invested in back in 2012 that had three partners. And two of the partners were the active on the ground, a single family related. They were the guys with a ton of experience in the market, the back of their hand, and they were the active operators I was depending on, right? When I was going into that deal. And so I focused on analyzing them and doing due diligence on them. And I didn't get to know the third partner very well, who was basically the IT back end guy, okay? Um, Minority holder. Well, fast forward a year or so, it turns out that they had a partner dispute and the two key guys walk away and basically hand over the investors to this back-end office guy who doesn't have much real estate experience, but thought he did, and was totally not a person I would have made a bet on. And so long story short, he's mismanaged everything. I actually stepped in on behalf of my group, um, negotiated uh, handing him handing over the properties to us, found another uh, manager to fill in for him, and then we liquidated everything and we ended up at just about break even, which frankly, you know, three years later is not a good result. When you're making 0% of return as an investor, that's not good. You never want to lose money, which is the point you made earlier. And that's the number one rule. So it's not a horrible result, but it's not a good result, right? It was an okay result under the circumstances though. And so that was a great lesson in that I really didn't analyze all of the managers, analyze the ones that I thought were going to be most key. But I think it's really important to get to know all the managers really well you know, as, as one lesson that I learned for sure. Um, I would also stress that, and I didn't mention this before, but background checks, I just, it kills me. I mentioned them on a lot of podcasts I'm on, and I still find that nine out of 10 investors I talk to don't run them. And it kills me because it's absolutely, they've saved me multiple times before in very obvious scenarios. Um, and they're not exactly, uh, you know, a dollar to run, but relative to the amount that you're investing, they're very worthwhile. And a must, I think it's a must do on your checklist 
And um, I find that most investors don't have it on their required checklist. But that's another uh, big lesson. I didn't learn that a bad way. I did them from the beginning. So they've saved me many times. But it's something I like to at least pass along on these types of discussions to make sure people are considering those as well. So how, how do you do a background check? Well, I do a background check one way that I'll explain to you, but it's it's not the easiest way to do it. And most people probably won't be able to do it this way. So I have a different way I recommend as a result. So, and I should have mentioned from the beginning, by the way, I use the word recommend. I'm not a financial advisor, investment advisor, accountant, or attorney. So anything we've talked about here is just my perspective as an investor, but not, you know, official, you know, professional advice or whatever you want to call it. Um, so um, I run my background checks on something called TLO, like Tom Larry Officer, TLO.com, which is owned by TransUnion. Uh, fantastic resource. One of the probably top two detailed um, background check websites. The other one I'm aware of is Accurant, A-C-C-U-R-I-N-T. That's owned by LexisNexis, huge data company. I could tell you that uh, my we have good friends uh, of our family who uh, retired police lieutenant who, when he heard I was using TLO, he literally said to me, oh, the first thing we do here in LA when we bring someone in is actually use TLO to do a check on them. We don't even use our database first. That's how detailed TLO is, right? The challenge with TLO is that in order to sign up for it, you have to have a real business. So I have an S-Corp. You have to have a real office space, um, which I believe now may qualify as home office address. It can't be like a box or a PO box. They actually come inspect your office in person. The door in your office where you keep the files that you print for background checks has to have a lock on the outside of the door. The cabinet you put it in inside the room has to have a lock, right? It has to be steel. And like all these check boxes to get qualified up, it's, it's kind of challenging. So if you're unable to qualify for something like TLO or Accurant, because they're both very similar, what I'd honestly recommend you do is find a private investigator, which is what I did when I started, who will essentially be a member of TLO or Accurant, run the, run the reports for you, charge more than what it costs for you to do them directly, and then interpret them for you. And they add value by interpreting them for sure. You know, when I first started back in the early 2000s, I used to pay, I think it was like $150 for a background check. So they're probably a lot more right now. But again, when you're investing 50,000, 100,000, it's well worth it in my opinion. So I, I always thought PI guys, uh, a really good friend of mine's a PI and you know, he, I mean, I've never really got into a lot of detail with him about what he does. And, and a lot of it is, you know, driving around, you know, finding out information on miscreants essentially. Um, but I never really envisioned that it was a guy that gets behind a computer and finds out everything you need to know about a guy that like is in Tampa when we're in Northern California. Well, I, I'll tell you though, that if you were to become his client based on just this need, it'd be like easiest client he has, because I'm sure part of the process of what a private investigator does, one of the first things they do is probably run uh, a check on one of these systems, even if they're just trying to locate someone or trying to figure out if someone has a dual life or whatever the purpose is, because there's so much data you get on somebody in addresses and assets owned, et cetera, that you, this would be a, such a, because they're not having to do any of the driving you're talking about, right? They're just doing it all on their computer and just spitting it out for you and interpreting it. So you should talk to your friend about it and mention those websites and see if they'll do that type of service for you or what he does. You may be surprised to find he does that as well. Well, no, I will. And that's, I mean, that's kind of my point. I'm like, it's like, hey, man, I never thought about it. And no, you, you shed new light on it for me, for sure. So so here's a question, and this is a big reason I wanted to talk to you is you had such a, you know, contrarian, but yet it seemed to me like you were just spot on. I listened to you, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, two months ago in 
What is your view on different asset classes? In that podcast, you were basically saying, you know, you're kind of splitting your sides because you've got a lot, you've got a lot of money, you know, whatever that is. You've got money on the sides and it doesn't feel comfortable, but you cannot reconcile putting money in this market. And I'm paraphrasing. I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but give me your overview of the market and just what is your overall sentiment and what, what would you invest in? I guess, particularly Jermaine, to real estate, what would you put your money in and what would you not put your money in at this point? Yeah. So keep in mind, and it was, I'm very low risk. So I just rewind a few years to start this com- this particular discussion, which is I've been on the sidelines theoretically since the beginning of 2017. I say theoretically because I'm always open to unique or kind of no brainer type of opportunities. And they're always out there. They're just very, very hard to find and obviously in low volume. So I've been investing mostly on the sidelines since the beginning of 2017 based on cycle timing and asset price levels. And what happened is when the pandemic struck, I really got on sidelines because of additional uncertainty, right? Um, and that's where I stand today. We're recording this in early 2021. What I'm trying to do at the moment is wait until the eviction moratoriums are lifted, the foreclosure uh, moratoriums are lifted, the mortgage forbearance is lifted and all that stuff to see the reality of the situation, not the current artificial money printed you know, scenario we're living in. And, and I don't mean that that's going to go away tomorrow or next year or you know, in five years, but I think a lot of the excess that's been happening in the last 12 months is going to taper off. And just the eviction moratoriums alone could have a huge impact on apartment owners, single family, homeowners, prices, uh, and that could spill over into many other things. And so I'm waiting to really be able to check a bunch of things off my list before I can get comfortable investing. And I feel like the government has taken what would have been the end of a cycle and prolonged it a little bit with this additional artificial money. And I'm waiting until the cycle is really done. And then we see where we start from with the next cycle, because there could be implications in terms of pricing and cap rates that occur between now and whenever that cycle starts. At the same time, Roger, to your point, I've got a lot of money in the sidelines. And you know, there's two different types of personalities I find as investors. One is someone who doesn't have to have every penny invested all the time. They just want to feel 100% comfortable before investing in something, and they're okay with not having every, every, penny, every penny working. There's another investor who wants all their money working all the time because they want to be able to keep up with inflation, and they don't really care about volatility in the next 12 months. They just want all the money working because they're much more long-term. And I happen to fall into the former camp, but that latter camp of having every penny working all the time is likely going to have a much better long-term investing outcome than me, right? I just happen to be much, just in terms of comfort level, wanting to only move forward if I'm really, really comfortable. So you're catching me at a very challenging time where I'm not comfortable deploying money on average. So what I'm doing in the meantime is trying to find opportunities that I think are good shorter term bets, meaning that, you know, what's going to work in the next six to 12 months while I'm waiting for a lot of clarity to come up. And that's, it's very hard to find. A few things have come up, but overall, I'm mostly on the sidelines right And so on the eviction moratoriums, I thought that's state to state, no? It's very tricky to your point. So you've got kind of more nationwide moratorium that the government, the CDC has, which I believe is done at the end of July, if I'm correct, could be wrong about the exact month. But then you have all these local eviction moratoriums, to your point, Roger, that are all, that could be beyond that point, right? Um, I expect that personally, as a high level kind of discussion, I expect the eviction moratoriums to be probably mostly or fully done across the nation by the end of the year. But that's just, that's a guess, right? But that's my current expectation. So um, 
then it, let's assume that occurs and let's assume in Jan 1st, we start to get a sense of what things are going to look like. Well, it's going to take months to sort it out after because when you have evictions filed with the courts and there's a huge backlog, that's going to take time. And then once those tenants are out, then we got to see, okay, supply has increased in certain markets, which markets it has affected the most, which type of asset classes is it going to affect the most within residential and what is going to happen with increased uh, supply versus demand of uh, you know rental prices and what's going to happen with NOIs possibly adjusting and coming down because revenues come down and what's going to happen with even um, sentiment towards purchasing residential at that time, which could adjust even the, the multiple people are willing to pay, which is the cap rates. Those are all important variables. So I got to get rid of that uncertainty before I can feel like the cycles reset until we have a really clear path. So I could never expect you to have this answer in your brain, but I mean, I wonder what percentage of people, tenants are not paying rent by, uh, you know, by, and, and let's talk multifamily, you know, well, that's what it is. So class A in certain markets versus class C in certain markets. I wonder like what the broad stroke is and what the particulars, I guess, specifically just going, are, you know, can we be insulated somewhere to a, to a greater extent, depending on what we're looking to invest in, et cetera? Yeah, well, I'll tell you one tricky aspect of that, which a lot of people aren't even aware of, is that some local and state governments have actually had subsidies provided to pay some of the rents that tenants have. And when you're looking to invest in a property, sometimes uh, the landlords aren't disclosing those subsidies. And I can tell you right now, that I've asked a bunch of sponsors, when you discover those subsidies, let's say that 10% of the rents are coming from subsidies in a building. Are you able to go negotiate the price down? Because that's that's temporary renters that are probably going to be gone within a year, right? And they say, we cannot negotiate a thing because there's 10 buyers lined up behind us. That's just the reality of the current market. So as an investor, if you're looking at something today, it's very tricky because that factor alone could have a huge impact on you overpaying as an investor going in. And also, on the potential for cash flow to get reduced and NOI to get reduced going forward, right? So that alone is uh, is just one tricky point to, to discuss um, on its own. I will say that some statistics I've read have said that uh, 30% of overall renters, and I know that doesn't break down per asset class, but 30% of renters are behind in some form uh, in terms of over the past 12 months of rents they were supposed to pay versus what's actually been paid. Uh, meaning that if someone didn't pay all their rent in may have last year and haven't made up for it yet, you're part of this 30%. So obviously there's varying degrees of being behind and whether some of that may be completely forgiven by the landlord at the end of the day. But the statistic I read is about 30% of renters have not made their full rental payment to their landlords in the last 12 months. Wow, man, that's a big number. So, and I guess not to press it or take too much of your time or the listener's time, but I just will be Mr. Obvious here. I just wonder if in class, gleaming class A's, if there's any zeros of people that aren't behind, you know, or if it's two or 3%, whereas you're, you know, class C in a class D neighborhood somewhere where you run the risk of getting shot, but just by driving through, that number might be higher. Yeah. Anecdotally, I have heard that as you go down in class from ABC, the, that rate does go up. Um, but I think that uh, I don't have enough data to give you like a really confident statement on that, honestly. Got it. Well, okay. A, a fantastic 
conversation. So here's a question. So I have invested in a couple deals in class A shares. And I was told by the person that got me into the specific deal, who's like a co-sponsor just because he was raising money, that he said, hey, look, as long as, and this is in Austin, and I invested maybe a year ago, it was pre-pandemic. He said, look, as long as the property cash flows two and a half percent, you will get your 10% and, you know, B is um, subordinate to you. Would that make you feel, does class A as a result of that feel more conservative to you or do you, is it, does it still run the high risk because of everything we're talking about? I guess it would. Well, so there's two answers that I have. The first is yes. I, in my opinion, if you're looking at a deal today, the timing is just tough because of a lack of certainty going forward. And it would be at higher risk in a normal time for you to not hit that 2% in that particular scenario, right? But I think the bigger conversation is that preferred equity stack you're talking about in general as a philosophy. Because um, as a conservative investor, what I don't like about the preferred equity is that you're getting that 10% yield, which I would call probably somewhat commensurate if you were a second position loan, right? Maybe that's about the rate it would be somewhere between eight and 12, maybe, depending on who's borrowing it, that type of thing. So you're, t- you're getting uh, an equivalent debt return, but you're in an equity position, meaning you don't have the security of actually having a lien on the property, but you're getting paid as if you have a lien on the property, which means that I don't believe you're getting compensated for the uh, equivalent amount of risk you're taking. Now, that's just one person's opinion. The next person may completely disagree. But um, I don't typically invest in preferred equity because of that. That being said, if you held a gun to my head and said, Jeremy, you have to invest in this deal um, that has preferred equity in that exact deal you're talking about, Roger, are you going to take the common equity or the preferred equity? I would take the preferred equity all day because that, in my opinion, is lower risk than the common equity at that point if I'm looking for more predictable cash flow and not concerned about you know tremendous upside. So that's my, those are my thoughts on the preferred equity versus common equity. It's a very big topic that comes up a lot um, in my discussions, um, you know, in the past 12 to 24 months and, uh, very important that investors understand the capital stack and exactly what they're investing and what the risks are in terms of where they lie in the capital stack too. Very, 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 very interesting. Well, what is your overall investing philosophy? Yeah, I would say my overall investing philosophy, um, is predictability and predictable cash flow. Um, I didn't even mention in my background that the cash flow eventually got me out of the corporate world back in 2007. And so if you look at someone like me who lives off of passive cash flow and looks for predictable cash flow for that reason alone, um, I'm always going to be looking for lower risk passive cash flow that's more predictable. And that's the box that I try to target. I will say that I think that having what I would call a very well-defined and small box that I'm going to try and find a deal that fits in it's been very helpful and certainly very well over the years so that I'm not scattered and not trying too many different things where, you know, I just haven't defined my parameters well enough to, to really end up taking more risks than I need to. So, but I have a very defined set of parameters. And uh, to your point, you mentioned this earlier, um, that it's very easy for me to pass on something because I try to really stick to those guns and it makes it much easier to weed through opportunities when you have really well-defined parameters. Fantastic. Is there anything else that you would like to add that maybe I forgot to ask or you feel so compelled to impart? This has been fantastic. Yeah, no, no problem. I would say that I think the most important thing I could pass along to fellow past investors right now is, you know, everything's looked great in the past 12 months. There's been trillions of dollars sloshing around the government put out there to make everything seem okay. But what's going to happen when this goes away, right, or partially goes away? 
So everything feels real good right now, but it, I would just strongly advise people to be very careful at this very moment. Um, I, Roger, I have to leave people with this statistic, okay? Because people have lost sight of just how much a trillion dollars is, okay? Listen to this. If there's $6 trillion of proposed stimulus this year, 1.9 trillion was already passed. Another, whatever that remainder is, 4.1 or whatever it is, is currently proposed. I think it's 2.1 trillion. Sorry, I'm getting the numbers wrong, but it's 1.8 trillion for the American families, whatever it's called, that's been recently discussed this week. There's also $2.3 trillion infrastructure. The total of between the three, if I added it up correctly before, was $6 trillion, okay? Just this year, forget what happened last year already, $6 trillion. If you were given, Roger, $7 million a day since Jesus Christ was born, you would not have $6 trillion today. $7 million a day since Jesus Christ was born, you would not have $6 trillion today, Roger. If you were given a million dollars a day since Jesus Christ was born, you wouldn't have a trillion dollars today. That's how much these trillions are that people have now lost sight of because they're just commonly you know, mentioned in the media. So the amount of money that has been put out there to, to mitigate some of these risks has been huge and everything feels great. But once it starts to taper, um, we could see many more vacancies and many more effects as a result on the economy and so many other things. So just be very careful right now. I don't think we have much longer until we discover all these things that I'm waiting to discover. And so as investors, you know, you don't have too much longer of a timeline to see what happens once a lot of this is starting to taper off. So to me, the risk reward is not a very good proposition today unless there's a no-brainer or some unusual opportunity. And it's hard to really keep that in mind when everything seems okay. So that's what I'd like to pass along as a final word here today. Well, l- listen, I, I am not uh, great at history. So when, when was Jesus born? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if, I mean, my understanding, if you think about it, is that we're, we're at year 2021. 20, so that would be it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Thank God I got that right, you know. God. I should be crucified for asking the question. But <laughs> anyway, how would one get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. So uh, anyone's welcome to contact me. I'm happy to network with other investors. If I can help newer investors, I'm happy to help. Um, if, you, if you're another investor group, I want to network. I love networking with other investor groups. If you're a sponsor, I have opportunities. I'm happy to take a look. So my email is the best way to reach me, which is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L investments uh, with an S, so plural.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Jeremy, this has been uh, even better than I thought it was going to be. And I thought it was going to be great. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for having me on. Really, I just hope it was helpful for the listeners. And certainly I want to thank everyone out there who's, who's listened to the whole thing here. You got it. And I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>